If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 13, where this morning we're going to consider verses 22 to 30. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's inspired Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 22. Jesus went on His way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then the master will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for Your help now. We do know that You have spoken clearly and plainly in the Bible. And we pray, God, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to believe. We ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination this morning. We know, Father, that even on our best days, we are not able to discern truth on our own. We stand in need of Your Spirit's work. And so we ask now for the Holy Spirit to help us. Father, I pray for the Spirit's help to make Your Word clear and plain and to explain it accurately for the good of Your people. We pray, Father, that Your church would be built up today. We pray, Lord, that we would have the confidence to believe that Your kingdom is coming and that Your will is being done in and through the Gospel applied by the Spirit in the life of Your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Friends, our passage today is about salvation. The passage is about salvation. We know this is the theme of the passage because of the question that frames the text in verse 23. Look there again with me. The question in verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? That question, friends, tells us where to focus. We know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, but still... What kind of salvation does He bring? What kind of salvation does the Messiah bring? In a sense, this question has been building throughout Jesus' ministry. Why do so many Israelites misunderstand Jesus' message? Why do the Jewish religious leaders so consistently oppose Jesus? In part, because they misunderstand the nature of salvation. They misunderstand the nature of salvation. They were expecting a political Messiah who would arrive with power and overthrow the Romans. They were certainly not expecting a suffering Messiah who would associate with sinners and preach the necessity of the cross. They misunderstand 
the nature of salvation. In fact, think of how often just in the last few chapters, the people and the religious leaders have missed the point about Jesus. It's happened very often. Luke chapter 12, verse 56, the people did not understand the nature of the times. And then verse 58, they did not grasp the urgency of responding to God's Word. Luke chapter 13 and verse 14, the the religious leaders were eager to argue with Jesus about the law instead of recognizing that Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. And so, Luke chapter 13, verse 6, the religious leaders and indeed the entire nation of Israel is not the fruitful vineyard of the Lord. They're the barren fig tree. The Messiah has come and He finds no fruit among God's people. So do you see the pattern that's happening over and over in the last several chapters from the religious establishment of Israel down to the everyday Israelite on the street? People misunderstand the nature of God's salvation. And therefore, they are like the blind leading the blind. The Messiah is here walking in their streets and Israel seems unable to see Him. And so we come to this question in verse 23 of our passage. Will those who are saved be few? We don't know who asks the question, but that doesn't change the focus of the text. Here, Luke is giving us a crash course, you might say, in the nature of salvation. All of those controversies between Jesus and the religious establishment, they all find an explanation here in this exchange and this question. Here we see the reason why so many people in Jesus' day are so hard-hearted. It's because they misunderstand Jesus and they misunderstand the nature of salvation that He comes to accomplish. This passage then is a warning. It's a warning to everyone who trusts in himself. And therefore, it's a call to respond. It's a warning that calls us to respond. Like so many of the scenes in the last several chapters, Jesus is urging his audience, that's you and me, to respond to what God is doing in and through the gospel. And that, I pray, will be true for us this morning. Will we see the nature of God's salvation in Jesus? Will we submit our lives to that salvation? Not demanding that God meet our expectations, but submitting ourselves to what God says is true. It's a passage about salvation. In terms of an outline, you can think of this text as giving us three features that clarify the nature of the salvation that Jesus brings. The first is in verses 22 to 24. We see that salvation is an urgent personal concern. Salvation is an urgent personal concern. The passage starts off with another reference to Jerusalem in verse 22. Jesus continues on the way teaching and journeying to Jerusalem. That carries on the emphasis that began in chapter 9. Remember, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. That theme continues. And what that means is that everything is running towards the cross. I know that I keep making this point, but that's because it's essential. All the miracles, all the teaching, every display of kingdom authority, all of that, brothers and sisters, is leading Jesus to Jerusalem and therefore to the cross. We can't miss it. 
You can marvel at the miracles. You can be stunned by the wisdom. But if you don't see the cross as central to what Jesus comes to do, then you've missed Jesus. Everything is running towards the cross. As Jesus goes, He gets that central question. Verse 23, someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Again, we don't know who asked the question, but we can understand why He asked it. Think of some of the recent themes in Jesus' preaching. It's been somewhat surprising. Jesus said that He came to cast fire on the earth and to defy fathers from sons and daughters from mothers. Jesus used images like a tiny mustard seed and a small measure of leaven to describe the kingdom of God. If you put those things together, then you can understand why the person in verse 23 would ask this question. If Jesus came to cast fire, if He came to bring division, if the kingdom is like a mustard seed, then will the number of saved be few, Jesus? Will the number of saved be small? What exactly is the kingdom like? And what kind of salvation are you bringing, Jesus? You can understand the question. Jesus, however, doesn't answer as you would expect. That's a good rule of thumb in reading the Gospels. Jesus never answers as you would expect Him to answer. Instead of answering the question, He flips the situation on its head. Notice what Jesus says, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, you might say that Jesus does answer that question, at least by implication. You might try to extrapolate from Jesus' words and come up with a theory on the population of heaven, and that would miss the point, friends. The Lord's concern is not to join in speculation about the hidden will of God. Rather, Jesus' concern is for people to recognize their own urgent need to respond to the Gospel. This is key, friends. Notice how Jesus shifts the subject of the conversation with His answer. The questioner, the guy who asked the question in verse 23, he's thinking in abstract theoretical terms. He wants Jesus to speculate with him about the population of heaven, a truth that is surely known only to God. It's abstract. It's theoretical. Jesus doesn't go down that road. Instead, Jesus shifts from the abstract to the personal. He shifts from the musings of theory to the urgency of response. In that sense, Jesus is telling this man, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not the number of saved. The question is whether or not you will be among them. And you can see that shift pretty plainly in verse 24. This is easy to miss. I hope we don't miss it. The man asks a question in verse 23. And in verse 24, Jesus answers with a command. Strive to enter by the narrow door, Jesus says. That's a personal command. It's an imperative that calls the hearer to action. Don't just speculate about heaven, Jesus says. Strive to enter yourself. Now, what does it mean to strive to enter? What does that mean? Strive to enter by the narrow door. The word strive means to labor or to fight. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy when he says that he's fought the good fight of faith 
It's the same word. Jesus has a similar emphasis here. Strive, fight to enter the kingdom of God where salvation is. Still, what does that mean? We as a church affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We deny unequivocally that our effort or our works play any part in salvation whatsoever. And yet here we have Jesus Himself saying, strive to enter it. What does He mean? Well, the image of a narrow door is illuminating. The image of the narrow door helps us. By talking of salvation as a narrow door, Jesus is reminding His audience that salvation is found only on God's terms. That's the narrow door. You don't get to decide what salvation looks like. And you don't get to define how you enter. If we set the terms, then salvation would be a broad door. As broad as each person's individual preference. But that's precisely what Jesus denies. Salvation is not based on our terms. Salvation does not happen according to our preferences. Salvation is found on God's terms. The door is narrow because the door is defined by God, not you. So, natural question, what are God's terms? How does God define the way into the kingdom of God? What is the narrow door? Well, Jesus has already told us, hasn't He? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus has already told us what God's terms are. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has preached this narrow way many times. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not come for those who are proud and confident in themselves. He came for those who are lowly. Those who recognize their utter inability. Those who cast themselves on His work alone to save them. That's the narrow door, friends. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the narrow door. It's narrow because repentance and faith in Christ are the only means of walking through it. So go back to Jesus' command. Strive to enter. What does that mean? It certainly does not mean that you have to work your way into the kingdom of God. That would go against everything in Jesus' ministry, let alone the rest of the Bible. But it does mean, it does mean that when you hear the gospel, you fight against the natural response of saying, yeah, I'll deal with that another day. I'll deal with that another time. Eternity is still a long way off. I've got tomorrow. I'm just going to live today and I'll deal with all that salvation stuff later. I'll do business with God later. To strive to enter means you fight against that natural tendency to think that you'll handle it later. To strive means you fight against the natural human tendency to disregard what God says is true Today, not only about himself and about the world, but also about ourselves in relationship to God. You strive to enter by fighting to hear God's word and respond, not tomorrow, today. And friends, the urgency of that command is seen there at the end of verse 24. Look again what Jesus says. For many, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
That'll wake you up. Is Jesus saying that some people will want to be saved, but for every reason God won't allow them to enter the kingdom? No. That's absolutely not what Jesus is saying. That's not His point at all. Rather, Jesus' point is that many people will mistakenly think that they are pursuing salvation on God's terms, but they will miss out in the end because they've actually been pursuing it on their own terms. There are many who will think that their good works are enough to get them into the kingdom of God, and they will find on the last day that Jesus says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So I hope you see how Jesus shifts the conversation. The questioner in verse 23 wants to deal in the abstract. He wants to debate some theology and some theory with Jesus. How many people are going to be saved, Jesus? Jesus has no part of those conversations. In fact, he flips the entire conversation on its head in order to show us that salvation is urgent, it's personal, The question is not how many are going to be saved. The question is, are you among them? That raises another issue in the flow of the passage. If the way is narrow and open only to those who strive on God's terms, what is the right way to strive? Or to ask it another way, perhaps a clearer way, what does saving faith look like? If salvation is entered into by repentance and faith, then what does saving faith look like? Our second point answers that question from verses 25 to 27. Salvation comes through faith in Christ, not familiarity with Him. Salvation comes through faith, not familiarity. Jesus shifts the image slightly in verse 25. Now the picture is not just of a narrow door, but of a master who has shut the door to his house. Clearly, the master represents Jesus and the house represents salvation in God's kingdom. So the image has shifted slightly, but the focus remains the same. Jesus is teaching his audience about the nature of salvation and more specifically how one enters in. The picture starts in verse 25 with a startling turn of events. Some people are left outside. Notice verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you... There's the personal again. You begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then the master will answer you, I do not know where you come from. You can understand Jesus' point. He's reminding the crowd of something that he has repeatedly taught over the last few chapters. Their time for responding to the gospel is now. The need is urgent. For there's a day coming when the door will be closed. It's narrow now, but one day it's going to be shut. So like we said a couple of weeks ago, don't put off till tomorrow what the gospel demands of you today. That's the point of verse 25. But Jesus is not finished. There's a new element in this image as the people outside object to the master's criteria. They object to the master's terms. Look at verse 26. Notice their objection. Then you will begin to say to me, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now that sounds like Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? Many people in Israel have been present at Jesus' teaching. 
Many people have even shared a meal with Jesus. Many people, in other words, are familiar with Him. They've been around Him, they've listened to Him, and now on the basis of their familiarity, they plead for the Master to let them in the house. We know you, you know us, we heard you. Then the stunning response from the Master, verse 27, but the Master will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Friends, that's sobering. It's sobering. Jesus says, yes, you were familiar with me, but familiarity is not the same as faith. Familiarity is not the same as trusting in who Jesus is and what He has done. In fact, notice in verse 27 that the Master speaks in personal terms. I do not know where you came from. It's personal, the Master says. The issue is not how many events the people have witnessed. The issue is not how many sermons they've heard or how many lessons they've completed. The issue is personal. Do they know the Master? Or perhaps more accurately, does the Master know them? Are they united to Him by faith? Have they forsaken all of their efforts to enter by their own strength? And have they trusted only in the Master's work to bring them into the kingdom of God? Familiarity is not the same as faith. And so I, I, want, I want to just pause here in the exposition for a minute and point out to us how Jesus is clarifying what it means to have saving faith. Saving faith. Faith is not the same as familiarity. I'm going to say it enough that hopefully you'll remember it. Faith is not the same as familiarity. You can be, you can be acquainted with Jesus, but that's not the same as trusting Jesus. You can know all of the Bible stories and you can be able to recite what Jesus did. You can even quote some of the things that He said. But that is not the same as banking your life on His work to save you. Saving faith must go beyond familiarity. And it must express trust in who Jesus is and what He has done. That's perhaps the key takeaway from these verses. Saving faith is best defined as trust in Jesus' work to save you. It's not just merely believing in Jesus. It's trusting in Him. It's banking on Him. It's placing all of your confidence in and on Jesus. Now put this together with the first point from a moment ago. How does someone strive to enter by the narrow door? How do we respond to salvation that is an urgent personal concern? The answer, friends, is not to settle for familiarity, but to press on in faith to know and trust Christ. Salvation is defined on God's terms, not our terms. So to enter God's salvation, we must not settle for knowing about Jesus. We must press on to trust Jesus, to bank our lives upon Him. Many people are going to say, we knew you. And Jesus will say, I didn't know you. Friends, that's the call of God's Word this morning. If you're, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ today, I pray that you recognize 
The door is narrow and it will soon be shut. Don't assume that because you know a little about Jesus, you'll be fine in the end. You won't. The Bible, indeed Jesus Himself, is unmistakably clear at this point. The only way to enter the narrow door of salvation is to entrust your life, your entire self, your eternity to who Jesus is and what He has done. And here's, I hope, some encouragement for you as you think about saving faith. That's what we're talking about here. Trying to clarify what it means to have saving faith. And I want to try to encourage you for a moment. As you think of what it means to have saving faith, I want you to remember and recognize that the effectiveness of saving faith does not depend upon you. The effectiveness of saving faith does not depend upon you. It rests on Christ and what He has done. Saving faith is not defined by how you feel on the inside about the Gospel. That's not faith. Saving faith is defined by something real and true and unchanging that exists outside of how you feel. Saving faith rests on what Christ has done in flesh and blood in history. And what Christ has done is remarkably clear, friends. It's remarkably clear from the Bible, which is the most attested document in the history of the world, attested primarily by the resurrection of Christ Himself. What Christ has done is unmistakably clear. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. Have you obeyed God perfectly? No. But Christ has. And saving faith means trusting that His obedience counts for you. Though Christ was perfect, He died to pay for the sins of His people. Can you pay for sin? No. But Christ has. And saving faith means trusting that His payment, His blood, covers you. Though Christ died, He did not stay dead, praise God, but rose again on the third day, defeating the power of death. Can you escape the power of death and secure eternal life for yourself? No. But Christ has. And saving faith means trusting His resurrection is your resurrection. Friends, do you see how none of those things is based upon how you feel about them? Those things are true even when you don't feel like they are true. The power of saving faith is not that I completed the process correctly and therefore have merited salvation. That's not faith at all. That's a distortion of faith. The power of saving faith is this. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. The power of saving faith is this. Even when I am at my worst, even when I am at my lowest, even when I am at my weakest, when I cannot escape my own doubts and my own fears, even then my confidence rests on Jesus, not on anything in me. Or even how I feel about the things of Jesus. So I just want to be very clear. If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you came to visit church today, or, or maybe your mom and dad brought you to church like they ought to. If you're not a Christian, I want you to listen to me very clearly. I wish someone would have said this to me when I was younger. 
having saving faith in Christ does not mean that you prayed a prayer the right way. It does not mean that you made all of the right decisions and now God will listen to you. That is not what it means to have saving faith. Faith is not based on what you can do or what you feel about Christ has done. Saving faith is entrusting your life to who Jesus is and what He has accomplished regardless of how you feel about it. It means banking everything you have on the truth that Jesus lived and He died and He rose again to save sinners. Friends, my feelings about the Christian life are not particularly high today. And praise God, the truth of the Gospel has nothing to do with how I feel. That's saving faith. It's more than what we do and it is more than what we feel, praise God. It's more than simply being familiar with Christ. It is the expression of trust in Christ's work which unites us to Him for all eternity. That brings us to the final point in the passage. And this is a point that serves as a warning to Jesus' audience, but also I hope that sums up the whole passage and encourages us about what God is doing in the Gospel. From verses 28 to 30, salvation is a glorious global reality. That's the third truth. Salvation is a glorious global reality. At the end of verse 27, Jesus pictures that judgment is coming for those who reject the Gospel. And then in verse 28, He continues to describe what's coming. Notice what Jesus says, verse 28. In that place, that is the place of judgment, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Again, the context is pretty clearly judgment. Jesus is talking about those who will not be saved. How do we know that He's talking about judgment? Because of the reference to the patriarchs and the prophets. Those groups represent the believing remnant of God's people. Abraham is the man of faith, remember? He believed God's promise and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is the man of faith. So if you are excluded from where Abraham resides, then you are excluded from the people of God. Jesus is talking about judgment. But then notice what Jesus says in verse 29. He goes on to define God's people as a global body. Verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Friends, this is where you have to remember the context of Jesus' ministry. He's talking to Jews at this point. He's talking to Israelites, the physical descendants of Abraham. But here in verse 29, it's not the physical descendants of Abraham who are brought in, but those from the nations. The physical descendants of Abraham are cast out, while people from north and south, east and west, all the nations are brought in to enjoy God's kingdom. In other words, Jesus' audience needs to recognize that their physical lineage can't save them. Just like their good works can't save them, just like their feelings about faith can't save them, their physical lineage can't save them. Only trust in the gospel will save. That's verse 29. Now, in terms of New Testament Christianity, 
we ought to recognize the profound truth that Jesus is anticipating here. Verse 29 is a preview of the rest of the New Testament and the book of Acts in particular. The day is coming, Jesus says, when the gospel of the kingdom will spread throughout the entire globe and on that day it will be those who trust in Christ who are brought in. Don't assume that you'll be brought in because you share Abraham's genealogy. Jesus warns them. Recognize that it's those who share Abraham's faith who are saved, not Abraham's genealogy. In that sense, you could say that the Jews of Jesus' day conceived of God's salvation in terms that were far too small. They were thinking in earthly terms. They were looking for visible power that would change things in the present. But the gospel of Christ says that God's salvation is something much larger than an earthly political kingdom. God's salvation is the good news that Christ redeems people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. To put it another way, the gospel of Christ is so powerful, it transcends culture, it transcends language, it transcends ethnicity, it even transcends time. And it gathers together in one body those who trust in Christ by grace. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be encouraged by that reality. It's true that Jesus intends this as a warning to His listeners, and we should heed that warning. No one is saved by familiarity, and no one is saved by physical lineage. Your Father's faith can't bring you into the kingdom of God. So there's a warning to be heeded here, for sure. But at the same time, there's praise to be offered as well. This morning, right now, we have gathered together in fulfillment of verse 29. Verse 29 is describing us. So, do you ever wonder if God's Word is true? Do you question if the Gospel is powerful? Well, just look around the room. Here we are, 2,000 years later, gathered together in Jesus' name. If I'm not mistaken, none of us are descendants of first century Jews. And yet, here we are, gathered in the name of Christ. We are the people from the east and the west, the north and the south, brought together in the kingdom of God. And we've been brought together, brothers and sisters, entirely by grace. So there's a warning here, yes, but there's also praise. There's also a praise that God has kept His word. In fact, that combination of warning and praise is a good way to approach the last verse, verse 30. Notice what Jesus says, And behold, some some are last who are first, and some who are first will be Last. That's the kingdom of God. It's upside down from the world's expectations, which is both a warning and an encouragement. That combination, it's a warning and an encouragement. The warning is, don't trust in yourself. Whether that be your own good works or your family lineage, don't trust in yourself and ignore the narrow door of responding to God's Word. As we've said throughout the sermon, time and time again, Salvation comes only to those who repent and trust in Christ. So don't assume you're first. Don't assume you're okay on your own because you'll end up being last. That's the warning. The encouragement's also true. Those who are last, that is, those who recognize they cannot save themselves, those who confess their need for a Savior and trust only in Christ, they will be first in God's kingdom. They are the ones who by grace come to see that salvation is not something to earn, but something to receive. 
And they are the ones who come to share in what Christ is doing, which is building a new covenant people for God, a people defined by His gospel and united together through faith in Him. So let's sum up this text from Luke 13. It's a passage about salvation. What have we learned? We've learned that salvation is not a theoretical, abstract point of discussion. It's an urgent, personal concern. Salvation is not based on your familiarity with Jesus. It comes only through faith, through trusting yourself entirely to Him. And salvation is not something we receive through our family's history or through our physical descent. It's a global reality that unites believers together to treasure the glory of God. That's what we've learned about salvation. I pray. So may God give us grace this morning to hold fast to this gospel that's defined by God and not by us. And may He use us in whatever way He sees fit to spread the good news of this salvation to the very ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We pray for Your Holy Spirit now to come and to seal the words of Scripture upon our hearts and minds and to bear fruit. We pray, Father, that as we sing this last song, our hearts would be mindful of what we're about to do as we come to the Lord's table and that we would recognize, Father, that the Lord's Supper really at its heart is an expression that we cannot save ourselves. We must be saved by the work of another. Help us now, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.